combined considerably low presidential approval ratings with marches for women's rights. Next, mix in ongoing efforts to achieve black liberation. Carefully fold in foreign policy objections and add a dash of concern for the environment. Salt the earth to taste. This may sound like a recipe particular to our current time, but it was just as potent a mix in the 1970s. In fact, a new exhibition at Interference Archive highlights the social movements of the 70s and their all-too-relevant concerns. This is Audio Interference. I'm Rob Smith. And on today's show, I sit down with Brad Duncan, one of the organizers of Finally Got the News, the printed legacy of the U.S. radical left, 1970 to 1979, which runs from January 26th through May 14th, 2017. Let's get started. Brad Duncan's been collecting printed materials produced by the radical left for more than 20 years. Though his collection now numbers in the tens of thousands, Brad rewinds to the 90s to tell us how it all began. I started collecting in my late teens when I was first becoming um, extremely political. I guess I I had gradually become more and more political over the course of my teens and then was really kind of radicalized in my late teens, in part by the Detroit newspaper strike. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, and that, um, that event happened in 1995 and had a huge impact on me. And as soon as I became interested in radical left politics, in socialist politics, et cetera, et cetera, I became interested in the idea of uh, the question of how did people organize for these ideas in previous generations? Um, how did people how did people fight to make these these dreams a reality? And so I started trying to research the this you know resurgence of the radical left that happened in the late '60s and '70s that I had heard a little bit about just kind of through pop culture, you know, the student movement and the Black Panthers and all this kind of stuff. But what I found, and this is really what spurred my collecting, what I found is that in the mainstream histories focused on the liberalism of the early 60s disparaged the radicalism of the late 60s and then basically stopped telling the story in the very early 70s, which even as a young person without a very sophisticated conception of this stuff, obviously seems like they're leaving out a huge part of the story. When it's like this whole generation becomes radicalized. Oh, but in 1972, they all go home and back to you know civilian life. Um, so basically, the idea of uncovering the radical history of the new left and the radical and socialist and anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist part of the new left experience became something I became kind of obsessed with. And basically... What I found is that because the city of Detroit has such a background in radical history and labor history and the black liberation movement, I mean, it's been such a hotbed of so many movements that if you go to like use bookstores or garage sales or estate sales or anything where people are getting rid of old stuff, you'll find pamphlets and books and all different kinds of paper ephemera that's produced by the movements themselves. And so basically that's what started me on the collecting path in my teens, just being a young socialist who was trying to find out about about all this history. 
Brad's personal collection extends far beyond the 1970s. I asked him why he chose to focus on that particular decade for this exhibition. I think the 70s specifically, it's been the most kind of clouded in mystery. You know, it's kind of like the, a lesser-known decade of, of protest compared to the 1960s. But the, the reason that, that I like the idea that it goes over the whole course of the 70s is because we get to see the entire arc of these movements rise and fall. At the beginning of 1970, in the spring of 1970, the U.S. Uh, invades Cambodia. There are student-wide strikes. People are shot at Kent State and then Jackson State. There are more student-wide strikes. I mean, arguably, 1970 is the year that more people were on the streets demonstrating against the war in Vietnam than any other year. So the decade starts with the, the biggest possible amount of people that were on the streets against U.S. foreign policy, okay? Um, in many ways, the Black Liberation Movement, um, groups like the Panthers and so many other revolutionary nationalist or black power groups are at the height of their kind of influence in the culture and their visibility in the political conversation. The same thing was true with the Women's Liberation Movement. One main point that we make in the uh, exhibition um, pretty heavily is that all of these different radical movements that we look at, they all imagined, some more centrally than others, but they all imagined that working class people were going to be organizing at work and taking on the power of employers where they work. Whether you were a radical feminist or in a party-building Marxist group or, or in a black liberation group or in the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, all these different radical movements that come up in the exhibition, they all imagined over the course of the 70s that there was going to be this like 1930s-level renaissance of people organizing at work and challenging capital at the point of production. And it turns out over the course of the 70s, whether it's from the oil crisis of 1973 or stagflation in the mid 70s or, you know, the gradual deindustrialization in places like, you know, uh, my hometown of Detroit, um, working class people do not feel increased confidence and like willingness to push back against capital over the course of the 70s, you know, uh, these experiences have a, a demoralizing effect on the amount of strikes and the amount of organizing. The draft is not promoting people going onto the streets like they were. Um, whether it's, you know, COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program and FBI repression and co-optation and all of these other things, you know, have a huge depressing factor on the black liberation movement. And so when we look at it from the whole 70s, we have to contend with the fact that like most of this collapsed and was defeated or was co-opted or descended into sectarian infighting that resembled a, you know, a bar brawl. You know, because by 80, uh, Ronald Reagan was president and soon he would be, you know, busting the air traffic controllers union on the evening news and protest would be something we didn't hear about for 20 years. I'm exaggerating, but the end of the 70s, you know, the end of those movements was was uh, pretty severe. So that's, I mean, that's like, that's how I imagine the historical bookend of the exhibit, you know. What are some of your favorite pieces that will be shown during the show? Uh, the favorite items. The way that we're organizing the exhibition is in the eight main chapters and that are thematic. 
and then four chapters that are around events or issues. And one of them is specifically on black national liberation movement in the United States. It's called Toward New Africa is the name of the chapter. And it focuses on organizations in the black liberation movement that focused focused on national self-determination and specifically focused on the South and the territory of the Deep South as being the foundation of black liberation. And, you know, in a lot of histories of the 70s, there might be some attention paid, but I feel like this idea of territorial nationalism and kind of what's often called the new African independence movement um, that has is often not talked about in these in these kind of historical uh, exhibitions, and I have I've I've really gone out of my way to collect that node and that current within the movement over the years. Um, I think a lot of people will come see this exhibition and actually won't know about those groups at all, or will know a little bit, but like have not seen 15 flyers and pamphlets related to it in one place. So I would say all that is some of my favorite stuff. Um, I would say another favorite aspect for me, um, we recruited some really fantastic writers to write for the book that we're publishing around this exhibition. And for a couple of them, we're going to be using excerpts of their essays as wall text throughout the exhibit. All of them are fantastic. And a couple of them make for such good wall text that it like when you're in the exhibit, the testimonies, because they're kind of, you know, history testimonies from movement veterans that'll be that'll accompany the items, I think is going to be one of the sharpest aspects. For sure. What lessons, if any, are you hoping that viewers or visitors of the exhibition can take away? Oh, wow. Lessons. Um, What I hope happens is that a lot of people who have been politicized in the last few years around specific movements that have come up are going to see two things. One is they're going to see those movements of things that they have been talking about and have been defining their lives in the last three years. They're going to see echoes of them in the material from the past that are are so taken from their stories of their daily life, it's really chilling. I mean, it's chilling. We have a whole section in this uh, exhibition around activism around prisons and the police. And there are flyers, handwritten flyers, hand mimeographed flyers that are for around a struggle in a neighborhood that ask the same questions and use the same language as the Black Lives Matter movement does today. One of them says, why was this this, um, boy after he was murdered allowed to sit in the street? It says on one of the flyers. The material we're going to see on Palestine that's all about um, self-determination or apartheid. And how can you occupy and colonize someone else's land and have it not be an apartheid state? And like the question of self-determination at the core of that. And, and there's pamphlets about that in this exhibition that are like straight out of the conversation of the Middle East today. I mean, it's, it's chilling. It's informative and insightful, but also harrowing to, you know, think about. And so I think that people are going to see reflected in this so much from their own life and from the contemporary world. 
more than we want there to be. And I'm hoping that by looking at the radicalism of the 70s, these movements that were different but related and interpenetrated, if it opens up people's eyes to how different kinds of oppression are related and like how people build resistance to oppression and especially the kind of explicitly socialist, i.e. visionary post-capitalist component to it, then I, in a certain sense, what could people take away from the exhibit? All of that, that grandness, that's, what's, that's what I feel like is often missing. It's the big picture, how do we tear everything down and have a really humane future? It's that, it's the bigness of 70s radicalism that I would love people to take away from this. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.